bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, August 4th, 2020. I hope that you and your family are safe and well. We do have a lot of news for you today. We're going to start with the latest news and negotiations for the next round of COVID-19 relief legislation, including a discussion of something that isn't included yet, an extension of the now-expired federal eviction moratorium and rental assistance. Then we're going to talk about coronavirus-related guidance from the IRS for the Start Tax Credit, as well as how the CD5 Fund plans to continue to handle COVID-19 relief guidance for the new Marcus Tax Credit. We're also going to discuss presidential candidate Joe Biden's latest economic plan and what it has to say about the new Marcus tax credit and opportunity zones. And I'll wrap up with some news from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Now, there's a lot to get to, so if you're ready, let's get started. Now, talks continue in Congress over the next wave of legislation for COVID-19 relief. And as we mentioned last week, Senate Republicans introduced the HEALS Act. Now, the HEALS Act is a $1 trillion proposal that includes a second round of direct payments to individuals and a second round of Paycheck Protection Program loans. Now, Republican leadership, Senate leadership, intended for the Heals Act to be the starting point of negotiations with congressional Democrats. That said, it didn't take long for negotiations to bog down. Many Senate Republicans, the rank and file, were unhappy with the bill, with some Senate Republicans considering the bill too expensive. Now, the Senate adjourned last week without significant progress, though talks did continue throughout the weekend and on Monday among White House negotiators and Democratic leaders in the House and the Senate. Now, while there's strong disagreement on some issues, there is hope that once the most expensive issues are settled, an agreement could happen quickly. It doesn't appear that that agreement, though, will happen this week. As House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told Democrats on Monday that she expects the talks to continue into next week. This is according to reporting from Roll Call. Now, many believe the true deadline for an agreement is 10 days from now. That would be August 14th. Now, why August 14th, you may ask? Well, August 14th is the Friday before the Democratic National Convention. To specifically address what community development provisions could be included in the final agreement, we can start with what the Senate Republicans did and did not offer. The Hills Act did not offer any provisions related to the low-income housing tax credit, new market tax credit, store tax credit, renewable energy tax credits, or opportunity zones. But the Heals Act did include $3.3 billion in housing appropriations. Now, looking at the HEROES Act, the Democratic version, it did not have any of those community development tax provisions either. But the HEROES Act did include $100 million in emergency rental assistance and more than $24 billion in other HUD funding. Now, while COVID-19 relief legislation, both in the House and the provision in the Senate, lacks community development tax provisions, that doesn't mean that those provisions are off the table for this round of discussions and negotiations. Some provisions of the House-passed Moving Forward Act could find their way into COVID-19 relief legislation. Now, the Moving Forward Act, you may recall, was passed by the House on July 1st. That bill included sweeping provisions for a broad range of community development tax incentives. In fact, my Washington Wire column in the August issue of the Nürburgring Journal of Tax Credits examines the Moving Forward Act. In the column, I look at what provisions 
could be included in other legislation this year, including this round of COVID-19 relief legislation. Now, among the provisions that could be included are a permanent 4% local housing tax credit floor, permanence for the new markets tax credit, and more. And to highlight the potential for including some of these provisions, or some housing provisions at least, in this COVID-19 relief legislation, last Friday, a group of 103 members of the House signed a letter asking leadership to include affordable housing provisions in the next COVID-19 relief legislation. The letter sought four specific provisions, including a 4% minimum rate, as well as a 50% increase in the annual allocation. And just as important as the letter was that the letter, the signatories on the letter were bipartisan, showing that the provisions for affordable housing has broad support in the House. Now, we're going to keep a close eye on negotiations, and we'll keep you updated on any community development tax incentive provisions that are included. Please follow me on Twitter for more immediate updates as we learn more about these discussions. Now, let's consider something else that was not included in the HEALS Act. That's the federal eviction moratorium, which expired July 24th, 11 days ago. The eviction moratorium was part of the CARES Act that passed back in March. The eviction moratorium allows residents or allowed residents to stay in their apartments, even if they didn't pay rent. This was intended to help renters who could not pay their rent due to the pandemic, though no such causation was needed to avoid evictions. The eviction moratorium was a blanket moratorium covering all renters not paying rent for any reason. Now, last week, before the Heals Act was introduced in the Senate, White House Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow said that the Trump administration would, and I quote, lengthen the federal eviction moratorium. Like I said, it has since expired. Now, please note that while the federal eviction moratorium has expired, many states and local jurisdictions have extended their own moratorium. For instance, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis last week extended his state's eviction moratorium until September 1st. In California, supervisors in Alameda County, which includes Oakland, extended the moratorium until at least December 31st. And Philadelphia extended the eviction moratorium for renters and public housing properties in that city until March 15th, 2021. And there are more areas that have extended a moratorium. Now, the goal of keeping renters in their homes, even if they're unable to pay rent due to COVID-19, is laudable. However, affecting this result solely through a moratorium on evictions leaves property owners suffering the economic cost of this federal policy. I should say federal and state and local policy. In short, the federal government and state and local governments are guaranteeing housing for renters during the term of the moratorium without reimbursing landlords for the economic cost of this guarantee. To correct this, many believe that the eviction moratorium should be paired with rental assistance. Now, my partner Blair Kenser wrote a blog post about this need for rental assistance. Blair points out in the blog post that the additional $600 in unemployment benefits provided under the CARES Act made it possible for many tenants to pay rent. That benefit, as you likely have heard, ended Friday. Now, Blair points out that the U.S. had a long-term shortage of affordable housing even before COVID-19 hit. His blog post considers all the ways people are making rent and the ripple effects. Blair makes the point that there, that there are several ways that Congress can address this difficulty. And pairing extra rental assistance with an extension of the eviction moratorium is a logical solution. 
There's a link to Blair's blog post in today's show notes, and I'll tweet out the link as well. And I'll keep you updated in this podcast and on Twitter about developments in the COVID-19 legislation discussion. Now, let's move to some guidance for historic tax credit properties. The IRS last week published Notice 2020-58. This notice provides relief to taxpayers in satisfying the substantial rehabilitation test for historic tax credit properties. Relief applies to taxpayers that have a 24-month or 60-month measure period that ends on or after April 1, 2020 and before March 31, 2021. Under the guidance, those taxpayers now have until March 31, 2021 to satisfy the 24-month or 60-month measuring period test. The IRIS guidance is most beneficial to taxpayers attempting to qualify under the transition rule that was provided in tax reform legislation in 2017. Taxpayers originally had to satisfy the substantial rehabilitation test for a transition rule by June 20th, 2020. They now have until March 31st, 2021. Now, once again, any deadline from April 1, 2020 through March 31, 2021 is now March 31, 2021. Now, this is helpful guidance, but it could have been more helpful, or the IRS could have issued guidance that was more helpful. That's because this guidance is somewhat limited. The IRS guidance merely covers taxpayers whose substantial rehabilitation test period ends in the one-year period of April 1, 2020 through March 31, 2021. Any property owner with an end outside of that period gets no extension. Now, of course, COVID-19 does affect all historic tax credit properties, whether or not their period ends in that 12-month period. For example, a property with a 24-month period that begins in 2019 would receive no extension. So what could the IRS have done? My view is that the IRS should have adopted a rule, the same rule they used for the 30-month substantial improvement period for opportunity zones. In that case, for opportunity zones, the IRS suspended the period of April 1 through December 31 of this year. This means that the nine-month period of April 1 to December 31 is excluded in measuring the 30-month period. In other words, everyone got a delay, a delay of up to nine months. Had the IRS adopted a similar approach for historic tax credit properties and used their March 31, 2021 extension date, then any property with a 24- or 60-month test that overlapped with the relief period would have seen some level of extension of their substantial rehabilitation test measure period, an extension of up to 12 months, meaning the 24 months would be up to 36 months, the 60-month could be up to 72 months, depending on the degree of overlap during the extension period. Now, regardless of that and the fact that it could have been more expansive, this ruling or this guidance is good news for developers, those who had to satisfy their test during this specific one-year period. Now, if the guidance does affect you, or even if you have another deadline and need some consultation on how to handle that, call my partner, Tom Bosha, in our Cleveland, Ohio office. I'll provide his contact information in today's show notes. The IRS wasn't the only federal organization that provided guidance for a tax incentive last week. The CDFI Fund did as well. Last week, on Wednesday, CDFI Fund Director Jody Harris released an update that summarizes the work the CDFI Fund is doing at this time. Most notably, as it relates to new markets tax credits, the notice states that the CDFI Fund will continue to evaluate requests from CDFIs and program recipients impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic on a case-by-case basis. 
Harris said that the CDFI Fund doesn't want to make broad application and compliance changes too quickly. Instead, the CDFI Fund wants to take a long-term view of what organizations might need during the pandemic. Unfortunately, this isn't the approach that the New Markets Task Credit Working Group and other organizations have requested. In May, the New Markets Task Credit Working Group sent a letter to the CDFI Fund requesting guidance regarding issues resulting from COVID-19. The comment letter requested guidance for a CDE's ability to comply with its allocation agreement, for deadlines for authorized uses of a new market tax allocation, for reporting requirements, and more. These are issues that members of the working group felt needed guidance for all CDEs to use. Now, the working group will continue to communicate its request for more universal guidance and generally applicable guidance to the CDFI fund. I will include a link to the working group comment letter in today's show notes. Also, I invite you to join the New Market Task Credit Working Group to have your voice included in the next comment letter. I'll include a link to register for the working group in today's show notes. I'll also tweet it out. And I do want to give you a quick reminder. The CDFI Fund is expected to open the 2020 New Market Task Credit Round later this summer or early fall. If you need assistance with a New Market Task Credit application, please contact a Novogratic office near you. And I'd encourage you to contact us sooner than later because the application opening and then deadline will be before you know it. And there's a lot of advanced planning you'll want to consider in order to submit a quality application. Now, I'd like to turn to an economic plan announced by Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden last week. The Biden plan addressed racial inequality in economic recovery. The plan was the fourth plank in his so-called Build Back Better economic platform. The former vice president addressed several issues, including a small business opportunity plan and infrastructure. Biden also addressed a new market tax credit and opportunity zones. Biden's plan calls to make the new market tax credit permanent with a $5 billion annual allocation. Now, Biden has previously called for permanence, most recently as part of policy recommendations from a unity task force with Senator Bernie Sanders. The task force's policy recommendations were released on July 8th. Now, concerning opportunity zones, Biden expressed confidence in the potential of opportunity zones. Now, Biden's plan didn't provide a lot of details, but he did include three points about opportunity zones. First, the plan says that he would incentivize qualified opportunity funds to partner with nonprofit or community-oriented organizations and produce a community benefit plan for each investment. Second, he would direct that opportunity zones benefits be reviewed by Treasury to ensure that tax benefits are being allowed only where there are clear benefits to the community. And third, the plan would require Opportunity Zones investors to provide detailed reporting and public disclosure on Opportunity Zones investments. Now, the election is still three months away, but we were pleased to see that a Biden administration would embrace the potential of Opportunity Zones. And the plan suggests that a Biden administration would work to make Opportunity Zones even more effective. The idea of incentivizing partnerships with nonprofit and community-oriented organizations fits with the general principles of Opportunity Zones. Also, there is already bipartisan, bicameral support in Congress for reporting legislation. It's good news that Biden would push for passage. Now, most Opportunity Zone stakeholders do hope that there will be reporting legislation approved this year, which would be before Biden could even take office. As you certainly know, President Trump has been a frequent cheerleader for Opportunity Zones. That both major candidates for president embrace the potential of Opportunity Zones is a good sign for stakeholders. I'll update you if the Biden or Trump campaigns make any further statements concerning the incentive. Now, in other news, the House of Representatives 
passed a so-called minibus appropriations bill for fiscal year 2021 last Friday. The bill includes funding for HUD and the CDFI fund. The legislation provides $50.6 billion for HUD, which is about a $1.5 billion above the enacted level for last fiscal year, the fiscal year 2020. The CDFI fund would receive $273.5 million, which is also more than the 2020 fiscal year funding level. This bill now goes to the Senate. Also last week, HUD released notices with details on how to access funding that was made available in the CARES Act earlier this year. First, PIH Notice 2020-17 addresses housing assistance payment funding for the Housing Choice Voucher Program. And PIH Notice 2020-18 addresses additional administrative fee funding. I'll include links to both notices in today's show notes. Well, that brings it to the end of this week's report. But before closing, I want to let you know that next Tuesday and Wednesday, that's August 11th and 12th, Nova Gratic is offering an online low-income housing tax credit compliance workshop. This is an 11-hour, two-day course to provide attendees with the information and insight they need to excel in property management of low-income housing tax credit properties. Those who attend not only get expert instruction, they also get a 180-page PDF booklet. If you attend, you can also take the online Novogratic Property Compliance Certification Test to gain accreditation. I'll share the link to register for the workshop in today's show notes. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratic. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratic and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.